So it's been nearly a year since the Taliban took over Afghanistan, and uh, how are things going over there? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, a podcast about national security and terrorism. Recording this on the 31st of July, so the last day of July in 2022. And if you turn your clocks back a year ago, we all witnessed this horrendous scene uh, in Afghanistan as the U.S. finally pulled out its last forces. The Afghan government was basically left on its own to defend itself against the Taliban, which had been carrying out terrorist attacks every day pretty well for 20 years in Afghanistan in the post-9-11 period. And many people weren't too worried because they said the Taliban had turned a corner. This is Taliban 2.0, and it was a different kind of Taliban. And they learned their lessons about, you know, how to govern and how to treat people fairly. And I think looking back over a year, we'd seen that all those people were wrong. There is no such thing as Taliban 2.0. There's such a thing as Taliban 1.0. You probably heard my podcast with Bruce Hoffman last week. We talked a bit about Afghanistan. But I want to bring in a, a, another person who has written a very interesting article in the European Iron Radicalization entitled Afghanistan Under the Taliban Will Be a Hotbed for International Terrorism. So I'm delighted to invite to the podcast Fauzia Abdul. She's a critical thinker, writer, and policy officer for international organizations with a focus on positive social change, in particular in the fields of migration, gender, and inclusivity. She's a PhD researcher on peacebuilding in the Middle East and Afghanistan or in radicalization, and was soon starting as a research assistant on Taliban diplomacy at the University of Nibigan. And she's joining me today from Vienna. So Fauzia, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me. Let's start with a simple question, Fauzia. Why in heaven's name did so many people think the Taliban were different, the so-called Taliban 2.0? What would have led them to believe that somehow this group of Salafi, Sunni, Islamist extremists were somehow different now that they took over Afghanistan a year ago? I think uh, it has been a combination of um, information, provision, and also uh, hope. Um when the Taliban started their new offense, they have learned a lot about globalization on how to use social media, um, how to speak in a different way. Um, they brought in very well-educated people uh, who knew how to use their words. And I believe people wanted to believe this as well, that things had changed. They came with a new uh, way of thinking. But at the same time, if you really look closely to their wordings, um, even to the smallest things such as punctuation on um, how things are being portrayed, you could see there was there was no difference at all. Um, but at the same time, they were able to engage uh, a lot of people of the public uh, with what you can call maybe like a, a social media show. And yet, as I mentioned in the introduction, really not much has changed in the past year. Uh, you know, girls' schools are still not allowed. We've had uh, female employees being fired from, from, from public relations and from media organizations and government. So your article that came out about you know, a couple of weeks ago, Fauzia, in European Iron Radicalizations entitled Afghanistan mm-hmm. under the Taliban will be an, a hotbed for international terrorism. Wow. You don't mince your words there, do you? Can you, can you walk my <laughs> listeners through why you, you've had this dire prediction about the Taliban essentially creating the, a, a stable and fruitful environment for, for international terrorism? What was going through your mind when you were writing this? When I started writing this, I had also uh, talked with several um, Afghan government officials, and a lot of them 
um, express their disbelief that this could have happened and they did not see this coming according to them in their own words. And at the same time, I was thinking, um, how could we have missed this? This was um, something which I felt was very predictable looking at the way also in the last couple of years, the whole uh, peace negotiations have been involving. Um, so I, I thought, okay, we have to write this down on a little bit more nuanced uh, without uh, taking all the emotions in consideration and other people being really involved. We'll have, of course, this hope. Um, which I think has been a big role in how people have um, been reacting throughout the situation. Because if you look at it, um, the U.S. war on terror raged for 20 years through Afghanistan, um, and public messaging in, uh, from the Taliban involved uh, from the from the U.S. government involved protection of human rights, mm-hmm. especially women's rights, and focusing on a more pr- prosperous Afghanistan. And if you look at um, the final uh, peace deal, um, the Doha peace deal of last year, um, it's very interesting to see that all of this um, rhetoric has been dropped. Um, mm-hmm. All these topics which had been focused um, on uh, were not even mentioned and was mainly a focus on Afghanistan not becoming a breeding ground for inter- international terrorists. Right. Um, which unfortunately um, has not been a safeguard for this not to happen, as we have seen developing since the Taliban took seat in Kabul. Um, which is also interesting is that the peace deal did not really specify the relationship between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and was left open to some interpretation, Mm -hmm. Um, which was, of course, already like, um, okay, there is some doom upcoming here. Um, And like, if we start with, for example, the ambiguities in the Taliban's public messaging about this relationship with Al-Qaeda, on one hand, the Taliban claim to only want to govern Afghanistan and, and think about the people. At the same time, um, history has shown and the reality shows that the, that the, that the Taliban always had an international outlook mm-hmm. and um, their territorial expansion throughout the country has always gone hand in hand with support um, for foreign Islamist organizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, they always have always mentioned as well that um, they have always like, mentioned their apprehension for foreign uh, foreign uh, invaders or interference, mm-hmm. but also at the same time they are mentioning that Al Qaeda is part of the Ummah, which is like an Islamic community, or like better said, like an Islamic right. nation. Right. So even though the Taliban had strange relationships with like foreign interference in the country, Al Qaeda has not been seen as a foreign um, intrusion, if you, mm-hmm. you can say it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially looking at more closely at their relationships, um, for example, the intimate connection uh, between several officials like um, Sirajuddin Haqqani, um, the deputy leader of the Taliban, and their uh, ministry, a minister of interior, um, at the same time is also a senior Al-Qaeda official. Um, so for not having ma- been mentioning all of these topics um, in, the, in the peace deal, it was expected that something would, else would come out of this. And this is a very serious concern, uh, potentially already in the near future. Mm-hmm. I, I want to get back to the Doha peace deal in a second, Fazia, but you know, you're not the only one who's made this prediction about the relationship between the Taliban and international terrorism. Senior U.S. military officials have predicted publicly that, in fact, uh, they, they foresee a, a re-rise of al-Qaeda under the Taliban because, of course, with the Taliban in power, as you mentioned, there are links between the groups that, go, that are long-standing. They go way back 
And so that the Al-Qaeda now sees itself as in a better position it has for the last couple of years. But getting back to the Doha peace deal, and you talked a lot about how people hope to be different this time. I mean, obviously, Afghanistan has suffered greatly for, for, for decades now, going back at least as far as the Soviet invasion in 1979. There's currently a famine in Afghanistan, a great deal of poverty. At what point does hope become uh, naivete? Do people think, yeah, we hope the Taliban are different, but are we really just being naive about it? And when you talk about the Doha Accords, was this just a way for the Americans to say, look, at, we're going to go through the motions and talk peace with the Taliban. We probably don't think that they're really all that much of a different group. But you know what? It's been 20 years. Joe Biden and Donald Trump before him talked about ending the forever wars. There was an increasing groundswell of support to get out of Afghanistan because nothing really had changed in 20 years. So how much of what went through with the peace deal, the negotiations, was just a, a way to check the box saying, well, we we tried with the Taliban and now we're getting out and basically the Afghan <laughs> people are up to, or, you know, we'll leave them to, to their own devices kind of thing. Um, when I talk about hope, I'm, I'm talking more about hope from the Afghan people. I do not think that um, any U.S. government official who was involved in the peace treaties um, was was um, acting on the on the faith of the Taliban maybe have changed. I, I really, when you do look at their behavior and the way they have addressed certain topics, they have not even mentioned um, the rights of women or minority mm-hmm. rights or um, any uh, any um, stipulations um, safeguarding uh, a prosperous future for the people of Afghanistan in the peace treaty. So I, I do not feel that they actually have taking this into consideration or actually thought, okay, the Taliban has changed. It was for, from what I can see, um, what has been stipulated, the main focus was we do not want to have trouble from them. Whatever happens, the rest, that's not our problem. Um, if you can say it in a cruel way like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I do talk about hope, I do feel it's more about the people itself from, Af- from Afghanistan. Like a lot of the, um, the activist group work for example, um, during um, the last couple of months before the treaty uh, was um, stipulated, um, women felt, especially with the, the, the Afghan National Council, which has been taking place beforehand, that they were losing um, losing their power, their, 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 the support of the international community. Um, activists slowly started changing their mind and thinking, okay, we were being so... Um, previously saying, no, we do not negotiate with the Taliban, but at the same time, if we do not get the support of um, of the international community, if things are changing on an international level, um, the military is also, le- like American military is not going to support us in the future. Perhaps we should change our ways and maybe they will be different this time. I think it was more hope out of necessity than anything else. Okay, that's an interesting, I think, clarification. Uh, there's an interesting line in your article, Fauzia. You said the Taliban have shown an ignorance of the deep-rooted Afghan national identity. What did you mean when you wrote that phrase? Well, I've seen in, in the last couple of years, I've seen so many articles or so many um, different um, um, speeches and conferences where everybody talked about how the U.S., could have taken the Afghan national identity more into account uh, when they made their plans or executed their uh, uh, policy. Um, however, 
that does not mean the Taliban did, uh, was was the opposite. Um, in the end, Afghanistan is a very multi-ethnic and a multi-religious um, country. Um, Afghan identity exists um, because of all of this uh, diversity. And the Taliban itself, even during the peace negotiations, they, when they talked about Islamic jurisprudence, uh, where they were basing all their um, stipulations on, they were excluding, for example, um, the Shia minorities um, for, in order to be part of this as well. Um, they did not even think about the fact, hey, we have a multi-diverse, uh, uh, multi-ethnic um, uh, country, and they all have to be part of um, of our of our nation in the end. Um, so the same thing the U.S. has done when uh, when they entered the country. I feel like the the, the Taliban as well has not um, taken us into consideration. And in the end, um, as as we have seen since they have um, taken place in in Kabul. Um, the Hazara community, which is predominantly um, Shia, which is like a religious minority, has been um, actively being pursued. Um, the it's it, people do not feel safe to um, to be openly uh, from another sect of Islam or from a non-Islamic uh, minority. People have been leaving the country if they could, or been in hiding. Um, and the regulations uh, which they have been enforcing are only for um, their view of Islam, their Sunni mm. way of um, uh, interpreting um, Islam. I do notice that just recently, uh, under one of their councils, the Taliban have just announced the imposition of Sharia law across Afghanistan, which is neither here nor there. I mean, Sharia law is a valid legal system within Islam, but I can imagine that the Taliban version of Sharia law will not be the more normative, inclusive version of Sharia. Fawzi, you, you know a lot more about Afghanistan than I do. And and maybe you can correct me on this, but the Taliban really are an import. They really are an imposition from abroad. Not to say that there aren't Sunnis in Afghanistan. Of course, there are. Not to say that there isn't a Salafist influence within Afghanistan. There is. But is it not true that without, for example, Pakistani help over the last couple of decades, that the strength and importance of the Taliban in Afghanistan would probably not have achieved the heights it has today, or am I oversimplifying the situation? Um, I know that a lot of people would like to see the Taliban as just a foreign import, uh, importation, um, but at the same time, they are Afghan. Um, if you look at the regulations or the way the Taliban is um, uh, portraying themselves or how they are interpreting Islam, it's very, very much focused um, based on um, the Pashtun Wali. Pashtun Wali is um, the code of the Pashtuns, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. The, 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 the majority of um, Afghans. And it has more to do with that code than Islam itself. Um, you, you are correct in the fact that without the Pakistani support, um, I do not think they would have had um, this strong position they're having right now. Um, but at the same time, they are they are Afghan. They are not uh, foreigners. They look the same. They speak the language. They are the majority um, of the population. Um, and at the same time, as well, a lot of the young uh, the youngsters um, of Afghanistan they have had their education in India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, they speak more order than um, than than Farsi, Dari, or Pashto. Um, they know about the culture. I, 
I do not believe that it's just a foreign support and that was it. Um, I think it's, it's so much more complicated than that. <laughs> no, I, and I thank you for saying that because I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I never like oversimplifications of situations because you're you're 100% correct, Fozia. Things are complicated and there are many factors that come to play when it comes to any particular phenomenon. I think the Taliban are a good example to say that it's purely it's due to Pakistan, as I may have erroneously indicated, is, is simply not true. It, it, it is there are, there are a number of things that come to play in that. You know, going back to your article, um, I've been rereading it a few times, and, and um, I hate to say this, Fauzia, but it's, it's a pretty depressing article. Um, I'm not saying it's inaccurate or doesn't reflect, you know, the research you've done and how you see the situation. Is there any rainbows out there? Are there any silver linings to the clouds for Afghanistan in the near future? Or do you think it's simply going to be um, at at best sort of a continuation of a bad situation? And at worst, it's going to get even worse down the road. Um, what I do see is I, I know it's a very grim article. And the way I see it is um, at the same time, it's also based on on facts and what, what I think is like what I see happening as well. Uh, which is being supported by um, several researchers and 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 policy um, and analysts. Um, what I do see as a positive part is that the international community finally has to to make a decision. For twenty years, the U.S. has been in Afghanistan, and obviously, it has not brought any prosperity to the country or any safety to its population. Uh, only to a very very small. Um, part of the elite of the country. Um, but by speeding up the situation right now, which is for everyone still com- sometimes incomprehensible, the international community, uh, NATO, um, even the US, they will have to make decisions. And I think this can be the silver lining for the country in the sense of that Everyone was involved in trying to make a change, which I see a lot from the female ambassadors all over Europe right now are still um, lobbying, attending conferences and fighting for their country. Um, they might be able to push them in the right direction for um, getting the aid they are looking for because well, the step has to be made. I, I appreciate your optimism and I congratulate you for, for seeing that silver lining, but I'm going to push back a little bit. You, you know, you talked about the fact the Americans were there for 20 years. Uh, you know, obviously, this was part of the so-called war on terror, a terrible term that I wish we wouldn't use anymore. But if the Americans do not take the lead in, you know, returning to Afghanistan under a different guise, not in terms of a military invasion or a desire to, you know, find the remnants of Al-Qaeda or Islamic State in Khorasan or whatever, is it really likely that the international community, I think, as I said earlier, it, it strikes me that people just kind of got bored. They were bored of the 20 years. They're bored of the war on terrorism. They're bored mm-hmm. of the loss of life. You know, with all the other problems out there in the world, is it, and I, and I don't mean to be, to sound cruel, but is there a very real possibility that the international community writ large is going to, to all of a sudden acquire some kind of uh, significant interest in Afghanistan to, to change things for the better? Um. I understand what you're what you're trying to say with like getting bored, even though this is a very horrible thing. Um, it is. To think it is of, absolutely, absolutely. These are people we're talking about. 
Exactly. But at the same time, it is it is reality. And you can see it also in the news, like Afghanistan's being pushed back and um, they're being struck by famine and, and climate change uh, results. And it is, people are like, okay, that's Afghanistan. It is what it is. Um, but what I was trying to say with why I see the silver lining is, even though they are not, the international community is not um, jumping up for humanitarian aid for for the children dying there or all the consequences right now um, for for girls and for women, but they will jump up, I believe, when there is going to be an international security threat. Mm-hmm. I do feel that suddenly the international organizations and everyone who's involved will have suddenly a say when they feel that their countries are being um, uh, under threat. So, mm. which is why I think it's very important to focus on the on the fact of Afghanistan becoming a yeah a, a breeding ground for international terrorism because this is a topic which people will always be interested in because it will also affect their own country and their own people in case they do get bored um, by looking at dying children and mm. feel that, that this is not their their responsibility. It's a sad comment, I think, Fozi, on humanity that we would it would take a terrorist attack, maybe not something as large as nine eleven, but something significant where we could see definitive ties to Afghanistan for the international community to get reengaged, and as you said, to sort of use the international security angle, if you will, to try to make a difference for the for the daily lives of, of Afghan, Af, you know, Afghan women and children and and, and men as well. So where where do you go next in terms of your your study and your research, are you going to focus still more on Afghanistan or because you have a, quite a broad remit in terms of your research interests. What's next on the agenda for Fauzia? Um, well, Afghanistan really struck uh, a personal chord with me. Um, and there is a topic which a lot of people don't write or study about is that in the Caribbean, um, during the time of ISIS recruits, um, the Caribbean was the number one place where you had the most ISIS recruits coming from. And looking at the region, you can see that um, the Deobandi school, which also the Taliban mm-hmm. is uh, focused, uh, is coming from, has been um, the, the school of thought in this region. So I've been trying to make a lot of comparisons and see like how this has been happening, how this has um, evolved and bring this um, debate on a bit of a larger, um, uh, in, a, in a, to a larger context, uh, especially because I myself have um, roots in the Caribbean with an Asian Middle Eastern background, um, which I find very interesting and how after five generations, this still has been brought to the region and has evolved in its way. Um so this is a topic I will keep on exploring. Um, I'll be joining soon um, the University of Nijmegen for uh, a project on Taliban diplomacy, and we'll see from there what happens. I've got a sneaking suspicion, Fauzi. I'm going to bring you back for another podcast to talk about <laughs> the Caribbean. Uh, I, I have a, a real interest in that area. I, I, I met with the Trinidadian Security Service oh, probably about 10 years ago now to talk about this very issue of Islamist extremism. Of course, you're familiar with the attempted coup back in the early uh, early 1990s. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I've talked at length with Simon Cotti from Kent University, who's written books as well as the... And you're right, Trinidad uh, has, I think, the highest per capita uh, participation in ISIS of any country in the world. There are some 200 Trinidadians that went to join ISIS in the 2010s. Exactly. So uh, good luck with your research. And I can't wait to talk to you about uh, what you find in, in terms of your Caribbean uh, studies 
And uh, I just want to say thank you very much for joining me today. I, I loved your article in European Iron Radicalization. I'll put a link to it in the podcast. But I do uh, I appreciate your perspective on things. And I, I, I again, I want to thank you for your 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 thin sliver of optimism in, in an area of the world where it's much needed these days. So thanks for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation and looking forward to the next time. It'll be sooner rather than later, I'm, I'm pretty sure. That was my conversation with Fauzi Abdul. We talked a lot about Afghanistan. She joined me from, from Vienna. She's done a lot of research on the area. What do you think about the situation in Afghanistan? Were we naive? Were we too hopeful? Were, what's, what's the future of that country? Not so much, not only rather with respect to international terrorism, but for the fate of the Afghan people themselves. Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at Borealis Saves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you like the content, want to get more, go to the website, borealisfritenrisk.com, hit the subscribe button, free access to all the podcasts and all the blogs. There's also a link there to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present, self-published. You can get it from my website. If you're into eBooks, it's also an addition on Amazon Kindle. Love to hear your feedback on this and other podcasts, as well as ideas for future ones. We'll talk again soon. Until then, take care.